work is what we are called to in the Christian life. And so what the Lord has to remind us in the whole book of Jude is that we are kept to contend for the faith. This very simple message if you, if you boil all of Jude down. And then in this passage that we're going to look at, Jude 17 through 23, we're going to see several different minders, not just that we're kept to contend, but how we must contend. We're going to think through several specific ways that we must contend for the faith as disciples of Jesus. It is my prayer this morning that God will use his word in Jude to encourage, to challenge, and to strengthen your church, a church that from what I can observe and from what I've seen online and, and spoken to some of your people with is a church that desires to be faithful to God's word, that desires to be and to make disciples, that desires to preach and teach and live out sound doctrine. So may God do that to us this morning as we jump into our passage. First, jump into verse 17. How we must contend, the first way we must contend is by remembering that our enemies are here. We must remember that our enemies are here. Starting in 17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these people who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So for Jude, our first point this morning, we must contend for the faith by remembering that our enemies are here. We start with our first, our first command. It's remember, remember. Jumping into 17, we see Jude is speaking to his church, not as a cold, distant shepherd, but as a caring, loving, sort of like a father figure would speak to his family. He starts off in 17, but you, or but you all. So this is, this is a larger gathering. It's not one or two people, but it's the whole church and a group of disciples. Notice he calls them beloved, just as he called them earlier, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ in Jude verse 2. And then again, beloved in verse 20, in love, Jude then gives the command that they must obey. You must remember now, this idea of remembering here is not that we would simply let an idea passively come into our heads. Oh, I remember that happened before. Like, I was randomly reminded of that truth. The idea remember here more has the idea that we must recall or grab the following truths and put them into our minds. So we must remember and remind ourselves of, the, of these truths. Now, we must remember... Jude says, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into these predictions, a very simple point of application Jude has given us already. We must remember what God has spoken to us in his word. And this is the call for all of us as disciples of Christ. We must remember everything that the Lord has spoken to us. What has he spoken to us? 1 Peter 1.3, everything that we need for life and godliness. So we need to be people that regularly remember and seek to remind each other of these things. He's given us his very God-breathed word, 2 Timothy 3. And so very briefly, how do we remember what God has spoken to us? It is the importance of our regular repetition of reading God's word, not just reading it, studying it, digging up the various truths that we can mine from God's word. It's memorizing it. 
So we can pray like the psalmist, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's praying through it. As we'll see later in the passage in praying in the Holy Spirit, it's living it out that we might be salt and light to the world that desperately needs to hunger and thirst for something more than what their simple pleasures can satisfy. They need to hunger and thirst for the Lord. And so we must remember God's word. Now let's focus on what Jude was highlighting here. We must remember the teaching of the apostles. What did they teach? The prediction is that our enemies, the enemies of the cross of Christ, will come, but already are here. If you hear the word prediction and will come, if you're like me, your mind will naturally go to the future. Because predictions by nature are things that are said in the present that are about to happen later in the future. Now, if you were in Jude's day or if you are listening to the book of Jude right now, your mind probably actually will not be stuck in the future about these predictions that are going to happen way down the road. That's a lot different of a tone than we see in this, in this verse. Why do we say that? Because if you're like the churches in Jude and if you are a church that is living here in Ohio and is aware of the things that are going on in the world, be very quick to know that we already see some of the types of things that Jude is going to describe for us already present. We see the various types of sin already present. And so we know the enemies of the cross of Christ have already come and are here. And so first way that we need to contend is by remembering that we are not living in our eternal home right now. We are living in a world that we're not to be conformed to, but we're, we are to seek to transform by the Lord's word. And so first we see, how do we know these enemies? What do they look like? We know them by their character, namely that they are godless. Very sadly, they are godless. They do not know what it means to walk in the Lord's word, to walk in his light or walk in his wisdom. So it says, firstly, if you look at your text, they follow their own ungodly passions. What does this mean practically? Whatever they want, they pursue. Whatever they desire, they will take. This verbal noun passion has the idea that someone would want or wish for something or desperately desire after this thing. But notice what they want. It is not good things that will ultimately satisfy, but they are ungodly passions. And so the enemies of the cross of Christ desire after things that are ultimately unsatisfactory and ultimately turn their hearts away from the Lord as far as that goes. So they desire after things that will satisfy themselves like power or money or fame or sexual immorality or pride or prestige or maybe their work. These are what the enemies of the cross of Christ look like. Next, these people cause divisions. They're not peacemakers that seek to bring unity and relationship and oneness to the body of Christ that Ephesians says is one body, following one Lord and so on. Rather, these people seek to bring division. Next, these scoffers are worldly people, meaning they are unspiritual people. They don't identify with Jesus as their Lord, but rather they seek after the things that their flesh, the thing that their passion desire after. And lastly, and most horribly and sadly of all, it says that these people are devoid of the Spirit. They are devoid of the Spirit. Now, I think this being devoid of the Spirit naturally leads to every single one of these other manifestations of sin. Because when we don't have the Spirit of God in us, 
we are not transformed because we cannot be transformed apart from the work of God on our behalf, making us new creations in the image of his son. And so there's very much this, this type of person, this natural worldly person who does not have the spirit of God is much like the person that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural or worldly, this is the exact same word for natural, person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this is the type of person. All of these descriptors of an enemy of the cross of Christ. So we need to recognize this type of behavior in our world, but not just in our world. We would be foolish to think that we just need to look outside to watch against those people. We need to watch our hearts that we would not be drawn after similar things. And so when we see this passage and we think through the way that we need to contend by remembering that our enemies are here, and we see these predictions of the apostles, we should think through two things. One, we should be very careful, very careful to trust on the Lord and to rely on him that we would not walk in these ways. We should also know that we're in the last days. Now, what is the fact that we are in the last days or the last times? How does that apply to us? Before we think through how it applies to us, where do we see this in our passage and through the New Testament as a whole? Let me show you a couple of verses as we go. First, our passage. It says, in the last times, there will be these people. And then when it mentions these people, it shows how they sin in a bunch of different ways. In our Bibles, the authors of Scripture have a close connection between the last days and the last times and sinful behavior. We see these connected. Let me show you a couple more verses that show this as well. Second Peter 3.3, 3, where Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So we see last days, sinful desires. Again, our next passage, these are both from the pastoral epistles going, going on from here in, in sec, First and Second Timothy, where Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Again, last times, some will depart from the faith. Same idea. And then here's the next, and I would say the biggest section that I could find showing the same connection. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, where Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will become lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, excuse me, I lost my place, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among these, I need to keep going. Avoid such people. For among these are those who kept who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to, to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. And so when we see this, this connection between the godlessness of the world in the last days, we should think through a couple points of application. First, we need to be aware that our enemy, as, as the Lord said in 1 Peter 5, 
walks around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And so with the enemy against us and people against the Lord's word and the things of the world, we need to not be conformed but transformed. Next, we need to remember that the fact that we are in the last days means that we need to be more urgently ministers of the gospel. Because we don't know how long Jesus has given us on this, on this earth. First off, he knows that we know that our days are numbered. We will not have one more hour or one less hour than Jesus has given to us. We also know that there are people, there are millions of people who, if they do not hear the good news of the gospel, just as, as we heard in, in Central Asia, they will not be transformed into the, into the image of Christ, and they will get what they deserve for their sin which we are grateful that we don't get what we deserve because we have the grace of the Lord. And so we need to be faithful in this way. A few last points of application before we move on in our passage. We we have to ask ourselves these questions and not move too quickly. First, do you look more like an enemy or a follower of Jesus? See, the reality is if, if that we are not remembering that our enemies are present and living among us, we're going to be really quick to start looking very similar to them. A few questions towards that end. Do you find yourself scoffing at the world and whatever displeases you? Are you someone who likes to build others up with your words? Do you find that you pursue sinful things with your desires or is your desire ultimately and sincerely to honor the Lord in everything that you say and do? Are you someone who causes divisions in the church? Or are you someone who seeks to maintain the unity that God has established in the church? Next question, if Jesus saw every area of your life last week, let me say he did, because a man's ways are in full view of the Lord. Would he be pleased, or would we have to confess that as sin before the Lord? And next, do you have the spirit of Jesus living in you or not? We're going to think through the gospel appeal that this passage has towards the end of our passage, but if you do have the spirit, we have to consider How is the spirit of the Lord from this passage calling us to live as faithful disciples? If you don't have the spirit, meaning if you have not trusted the Lord Jesus as your savior, placing the full weight of your sin on him, that means you do not have the spirit of the Lord, which means you need to listen to hear what God has to say to you in his word this morning. So first, we must contend for the faith by remembering that our enemies are here. Next, we must contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in God's love. We must contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in God's love. Read with me verse 20 and 21. But you must remember, beloved, excuse me, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we must contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God. Now, you might be wondering, especially at the start of this message, how we explain the clear reality from the book of Jude, that God keeps us. You might be wondering a couple questions. Firstly, you might wonder, if God truly keeps us, why does he say that we have to keep ourselves in the love of God? Like, what is that, what is that all about? What does that mean? You might ask, is God's keeping not enough? Do we have to rely on our own keeping to keep ourselves in the love of God? What does he mean by that? And so to answer that that first question, I would like to suggest and, and, and proclaim to you very clearly, God's keeping is enough for us. Read with me in Jude. Jude 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and 
kept for Jesus Christ. And so Jude is writing the book of Jude to these believers, and he says already they're kept for Jesus Christ. Um, Fast forward to verse 24, where Jude says, Now to him, this is a praise for the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep. And so we know very clearly God is able to keep us. Keep us from what? From stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And so these are like the bookends of the book of Jude. But somewhere in the middle, we still have our call and our command to keep ourselves in the love of God. And so these bookends show from the Lord that the Lord keeps us. So God is sovereign in his sovereignty, in his authority, in his power. He does keep us in his hand. Where we can say with John, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. But verse 21, it still shows that we are responsible to keep ourselves and to put ourselves, if you will, in the pathway of receiving the Lord's, the Lord's grace, which he has given to us. And so it is very clear the fact that God keeps us. And if you're not convinced if the Lord keeps us, I'm going to show us a verse, actually a whole chapter, very briefly. We're going to breeze through it. Let me advance a few verses. Apologize you didn't get to see those as far as that goes. Psalm 121, probably one of my favorite psalms that explains that the Lord truly does keep us. He doesn't just keep us, though. If he keeps us, that shows that he loves us. So read with me Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and now and forevermore. So you may, ask, you may be still asking, does the Lord keep us? Or do we have to keep ourselves? And the answer is yes. God has kept us in his hands and in joy with reliance on the Lord. We need to seek to keep ourselves in love of God, which we don't have to question what that looks like. The Lord is very clear in our passage, which we're going to see. But a brief application here, no matter what you're facing in this life, whether you are facing weakness or fatigue, being weary or being sick or cancer or death or the loss of a job, the loss of income, the loss of a friend, opposition from your family or friends for your faith, or anything else like this, remember that in all these, every single one of these situations and more, God keeps you. That is such a joy that we get to rely on the Lord in that way. The next question you might be wondering when, we, when Jude is telling us to keep ourselves in the love of God, you might ask, Zechariah, why are you highlighting keeping yourselves in the love of God and maybe not one of the other points? It's a very simple answer to that. The reason I'm highlighting that is because Jude is highlighting that for us. He makes it very clear that the main command, the central truth from those two verses that we need to keep ourselves, it's a command or an imperative in the love of God. And it gives three descriptors that explain how we keep ourselves in love of God. So what does the word keep mean? It's not just that I am owning something or passively like holding this remote. That's not the idea of keeping ourselves. It is more that we are guarding or protecting and letting nothing else distract us from that thing. So when we are keeping ourselves in the love of God, 
First, that implies that we are actively guarding or watching or not letting anything distract us from being in the Lord's love. That also means that the Lord is, we know from the surrounding passages, the Lord is keeping us. He is guarding us. He's not letting anything distract him from keeping us in his love. So that's the idea of keeping. Lastly, we get how do you keep yourself in the love of God? And our passage gives us three ways right here. By discipling others, that's the first one, by praying to God and by waiting with patience. We're going to see each of these. We need to keep ourselves in the love of God, verse 20, the first part, through discipleship. Where do I get that through discipleship? Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. To build yourself up in the most holy faith is another way of saying to disciple one another. What is discipleship? A very simple definition of discipleship is helping someone faithfully follow Christ. Helping someone faithfully follow Jesus is the idea of discipleship. Now, how, you may ask, when we disciple someone and when we have someone discipling us, that helps us to faithfully follow Christ more so that all of us individually have a more healthy vertical relationship with the Lord as well as more healthy relationships that we help other people follow the Lord in a similar manner. Notice he says we are to build ourselves up. This idea of building, I would say, has two ideas connected with it. One, instruction, two, fellowship. The first is that when we are building each other up in the most holy faith, that implies that we need to preach and teach and disciple each other in accordance with sound doctrine from the Bible. So that means we need to remind each other how the Lord's word should be brought to bear on our lives very tangibly. But also fellowship, the idea of building each other up in the most holy faith. Because when we spend time with other believers, when we have opportunities to encourage one another and pray for one another and love one another and all the other one another commands, the Lord gives us endurance that we would not have had we gone on on the same path of discipleship alone. If you look at the book of Philippians, especially in that book, Paul explains how we are to lock one another's, basically lock arms with other brothers and sisters and build each other up to faithfully follow Christ. And so this is the idea in our passage. So when we see that we must keep ourselves in love of God, we do this, that would be established in the faith, very much like the words in Colossians, that we are built up and established in the faith. And the reason is that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the first way we keep ourselves in love of God, then through prayer, second part of 20, and praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, how does prayer help guard our relationship with God where we give the Lord our love and we receive his love? How does prayer help us in that way? When we pray to the Lord, we are talking to him. Whether that is our deepest struggles, our deepest fears, or our deepest needs, or whether that is praying the Lord's word back to him, asking for him to work in the ways that he's already promised to us in his word. When we do that more and more, the Lord uses our prayers to align our hearts to be more like him. Because every time we pray in accordance with his word and will, he bends our thoughts, our wishes, our desires, and eventually our actions and our attitudes as we go in this way. So we need to keep ourselves in the love of God through prayer. And next, with patience. We need to keep ourselves in love of God with patience. 
Jude says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, what happens as we wait for the Lord's mercy? I believe as we wait for the Lord's mercy, we have more of a hope in what the Lord will do for us. We have more affections and our desires are more for what the Lord will do for us. And then we expect the Lord to do what he has already promised he will do for us. And so when we are waiting for the Lord's mercy, we already know when we study our Bibles how the Lord has given us his mercy, namely in the cross of Christ where he did not give us what we deserve. That's mercy. God did not give us what we deserve, but he gave us his grace. He gave us what we do not deserve, and for that we thank him. And so we are to keep ourselves in love of God with patience. When we are patiently waiting for the Lord, we know that our our hope is not always fulfilled immediately, even in what God has promised that he will do. But we know because he's been faithful in the past, he will be faithful in the present, and he will be faithful in the future. And so we're going to look in hope with what he will do. When he will finally and fully, what does it say in Philippians? He will bring to completion every single good work that he started. So we have, we have a hope in the fact that that will, hap- that that will come to be, that will come to pass. We then desire for that to happen. We see what God will do for us, and then we still see our sinful hearts. And we say, God, oh, please change me. I need your help. I need your grace. And then we expect God to act in accordance with his word. And so we must keep ourselves in love of God with patience. A few points of application before we move to our last, two verse, last couple verses, last two. First, as we see the fact that God keeps us in his love, we need to trust Jesus to continue to keep us daily. The fact of the matter is that no matter what our culture will tell us, we do not get through this Christian life by putting on our hard hats and pulling up our bootstraps and just going for it. That is not the idea that the Lord has called us to do. We are basically to rely on the Lord for everything. That's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day, give us this day our daily bread. Basically, our strength, our sustenance, our health, everything that we have comes from the Lord. So trust the Lord to keep you. Your keeping of yourself is for your good because it's keeping yourself in the Lord's love. It's not to gain merit or gain status before the Lord. No, he's already given you his status of what being kept in him. Next, next question. This is more of an indicative question to consider where our heart's at before the Lord as we hear these, these commands to keep ourselves in love of God. Very simply, are you actively guarding your relationship with God where you receive his love? Or are you letting temptations, besetting sins, or distractions harm your relationship with him? The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 gave us a very helpful tool, I believe. He says to lay aside every weight and sin that clings to us so closely as we pursue and look to Jesus. So there are things that we must put off as simply sinful things that we need to confess. And when we do, God's going to forgive us. We just need to put those things away, relying on the Lord to change our hearts. But there's also things that are weights, things that are not necessarily sinful, but they're not necessarily helpful either whether this would be a poor use of our time, our energy, our resources, the things that we read or listen to or watch, how we speak, you name it. We need to lay aside every weight and sin so that we are actively guarding our relationship with the Lord. That might look like spending more time in the, with the Lord in his word and prayer, 
with your family or in the morning, or when you're in a time of temptation, that might mean just sort of like repenting, turning from your sin, being like, all right, Lord, I'm trusting you. I don't even want to pursue or think about the possibility of sinning here. I need to walk in your way. So turning from that much like Joseph did. Next, next application question. Are you committed to biblical discipleship? Discipleship is being someone who faithfully follows Christ and helping others to do the same. The Bible is very clear if you look at the Bible as a whole, especially in the Gospels. In the words of Paul in Romans 6, we are either slaves of Jesus, which is another imagery of discipleship, or we're being sinful. We're either disciples of the Lord or we're being disobedient. What does it take to disciple someone? First, have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? So that's the first prerequisite. You might ask, what's the second prerequisite to disciple other people? So the first is that you're a Christian. The second one is that you are breathing. If you are actively alive and you are a Christian, the Lord has called you to follow me, to make fishers of men, and then in the words of Matthew, to make, excuse me, in the words of Jesus in Matthew, make disciples of all nations. And then he outlines what that looks for us, looks like for us. Next, praying in the spirit. How do we apply this? Do you pray to the Lord continually, whether at scheduled times or just throughout the day? Just having the posture of your heart be one of dependence. Do you pray to the Lord, confessing your sins before him regularly and often? Do you pray to the Lord when you are thankful or when you have different types of requests? We need to pray to the Lord in the spirit in many different situations. And very lastly, in this, in this point, are we patiently expecting and waiting for Jesus to give us his mercy, which he will give to us in the last times? Or is that something that if Jesus did decide to come today, where he was going to show us his mercy to right every wrong, to make us like him, would you be like, hold up, Jesus, I'm not ready. I still have all these things I need to deal with. We must always be ready. In the words of Matthew, none of us knows the day or the hour, so we need to live before the face of God faithfully every day. Our last point from these last two verses we're going to consider this morning. We need to contend for the faith by showing mercy and grace to those who need it. By showing mercy and grace to those who need it. Look at, look at verse 22 with me. Where Jude says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments that are stained by the flesh. If we look at this passage as a whole that we've considered this morning, the first two commands that we're to think through in terms of how we contend for the faith are about us. They're about ourselves. We need to remember that our enemies are near. Next, we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. But we cannot keep to ourselves in our discipleship. The third point is that we need to focus and have mercy and show grace towards other people. Now, what is mercy? We, we defined it earlier as not giving someone what they deserve. And so we said the fullest picture of this is, is the cross. Paul says in Romans, all of us have sinned. And right after he says that, the wages of our sin is death. And so we ultimately all deserve to be eternally separated from God in eternal condemnation in hell. That's what we deserve. So Jesus didn't give that. He did not give us the wages of our sin in that way. Rather, he died for us in our place. He gave us his grace, his undeserved favor. And for that, we thank him. 
And so just as Jesus did this, we're called to imitate Christ in this passage by having mercy in a similar manner towards other people. First person or, or group of people we need to have mercy towards on those who doubt. Now, these people who doubt could be in many different categories. This might be someone that is doubting their salvation. This might be someone that is convinced about their salvation. They've, they've actively trusted the Lord and are still trusting, but they might be doubting specific truths of Scripture. They might be saying, I see what the world says here. I see what God's word says here, and I don't know how to reconcile the two. I'm doubting this specific truth. I would say to each of these groups of people, having mercy on them would look like this, not giving them. Maybe they've been reminded so many times. You've said, hey, I'm telling you of this truth. I'm telling you of the gospel in all these different ways. Maybe they just, maybe they deserve more of a reminder, maybe like a, cold, um, maybe like a cold reminder to say, hey, why are you starting to question all these things that we've, we've built into you for so long? That might be what they deserve, but having mercy on them would rather, in love, continuing to bring them back to God's word as a lowercase shepherd pointing them to the uppercase shepherd of their souls that we just sang about a couple minutes ago. So we need to have mercy and extend grace by being loving and warm and helpful towards them, especially when they're doubting, so that they can say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief and go to the right place to work with their doubts. Next, we need to have mercy and show grace on those who will be judged. Look at our passage where we see in verse 23, And have mercy on those who doubt. Next, 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. Now, who are these people who are to be judged? And you might be wondering, what type of fire are we talking about? And what does it mean to save someone? Here's a couple answers to those questions. I believe that the fire that that the author of this book, that Jude, is talking about is the fire of hell. Throughout Scripture and even in the book of Jude, Fire is associated with judgment. This is many different places. You see this in the Gospels. You see this many different types of areas in our Bibles that fire is associated with judgment. In Jude, I I believe in 4 through 7, Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned where fire came down from heaven as an outward judgment from the Lord to expose their sin and the fact that the Lord is displeased with that type of gross immorality. And then you might be wondering, what would it mean like to save such a person? We don't save people, do we? I thought the Lord was the one who saves people. In a very similar manner, just as we shepherd people, but the Lord is the chief shepherd, we can save people from their sin because ultimately all that we are doing, we are being conduits of the Lord's grace, the one who ultimately saves us. We're basically saying the place you are going is eternal judgment for your sin which is a scary, dark reality that I wouldn't want for anyone. But I want, to, I want you to know about who Jesus is because he does not leave us there. So you're introducing them to your Savior and hopefully their Savior. And in the process, when you share the gospel with someone in that way, you might be saving others. Now I want to notice a couple things as we think through this. Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. That, that displays a level of urgency. None of you will let your children walk into a busy road without yelling 
running, grabbing them. doesn't even matter if it was your child. You would do it for each other's children or just someone you saw that was unaware of the surroundings. Because we know that if a child was just to walk into the road, they're going to get pummeled by something and be very sad when those situations happen. This is a similar idea and a similar word picture that Jude is giving to us. There are millions of people in this world that have not put their faith in Jesus. And if that is true, and since that is true, if they do not hear the good news that God has saved and will save and can save sinners through Christ, they will be judged for that. And so as believers, as disciples of Jesus' church, we need to be sharing the gospel and be about what the Lord is about. Let me suggest a couple ways to apply this part of the passage. First, we need to identify who are these people who are about to be going into this fire. So there might be different areas of our lives that we think through. Are there any family members or any friends? Maybe friends at school or friends at work or any other circles, maybe in our neighborhood, a people that if they don't trust Christ, the outward display of their life shows that they're not going to be with the Lord forever. First, identify these people. Second, pray for them. When we pray, we are letting the Lord work through our act of obedience. He's chosen for some reason for us to pray to him for the salvation of the lost. And when we pray, that's also softening our hearts to the gospel and opening our eyes to opportunities that may already be in front of us to share the truth of God's word with someone else. So we identify who might be going to this fire. We pray for these people. Next, we practice. We can't just randomly share the gospel with someone if we don't know what the gospel is or how to share it. And there's multiple ways to share the gospel. Some of you would share the gospel by sharing your testimony, saying, I don't know much about the Bible, but all I know is the fact that God saved me and this is what it looks like. And that's wonderful. And we love that. It might be by using the bridge analogy or the three circles analogy or the bad news, good news, or just reading Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and just saying, there it is. It's right there. That is a couple different ways, but I would challenge you. If you don't know of a way to share the gospel with someone, if I asked you, how do I know that I will spend eternity with Jesus? And there are people who ask this question, or if they don't ask, it's more of the time that they won't ask. They'll wonder this question. We need to have a sensitivity to be able to be prepared for the reason, for the hope that we have in those moments. And lastly, to these types of people, we give grace to them by sharing the gospel. We share the gospel. What is the gospel? Very simply, we're going to rehearse it very briefly. The gospel is the good news that God has saved sinners through Christ. And even though there's only so many of us in this room, the fact of the matter is that I'm not sure, and maybe you're not sure, if everyone here has heard and repented of their sin and believed in the Lord. So very simply, you might ask, what is the gospel? The gospel starts with bad news. I love this way of, of sharing the gospel. If you ever want to talk about this, I'd be happy to share my email and we could talk about this, is that we have to start with bad news. First off, that all of us have sinned. So you, me, everyone you know except for Jesus has sinned, which is a pretty dark place to be. And we know the wages of our sin, what we earn from our sin, just like you go to work, you earn your paycheck, we go on sinning and we earn wages. What is that? Death. That's not just being six feet under in the ground. That is being eternally separated from God in hell and judgment. Now, that's terrible news. I would never say go in peace after that. I would have to end the sentence. To end that sentence and explain what the gospel is, we have to go to verses like Romans 5, 8. But God, 
but God, or Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Romans 5, he showed his love for us by dying for us. When Jesus died for us, Jesus was fully God. So he had the power and authority to crush sin, which he will ultimately do finally and fully. And he started to do in his resurrection. But he was fully man. So he was able to pay what we had to pay. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinless death. That if we believe on him, we will be saved. Now we have to believe on him. If Jesus just lived a perfect sinless life, he died a sinless death. He rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that all happened. But if we did not rely on him, his work would not be applied to us. And so we have to ask and answer the question that the person asks in Acts. He says, sirs, Paul and Silas, what do I need to do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Most of you, except for you, are sitting in a chair right now. As far as that goes, you are placing the full weight of your body on the chair. I saw no one going like this. Will it save me before they sat down? In a similar fashion, we need to place the full weight of our sin on the Lord. Our good works, our morality, our, the, the faulty idea that good outweighing our bad does not bring us into a right relationship with the Lord. Relying on Jesus alone and his death on the cross is the only thing that can save us. And when we're saved, it's not just that we have a get-out-of-hell-free card, but it's the fact that God has given us his grace. And so we think through verses like Ephesians, which give us a purpose as God's disciples. We can't just say we're saved by grace through faith. We have to read verse 10 of Ephesians 2. Now we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ for good works, which he prepared beforehand. Before he had even created us, he knew that he would change us and help us to follow him. And so we need to be preparing and presenting and sharing this good news to other people. May I challenge this church, and I love hearing, even, even this morning, just prayers that you would have opportunities to share with people that you love and care for. May I ask you, for the sake of someone in your life, for the sake of those people who are going to get to spend eternity with because of your faithfulness, please be faithful to share this message. And very lastly, to be faithful to our passage, we have mercy on sinners. It says, to others show mercy with fear. These others are people who are, they might be saved, but they're dabbling in sin. What does it mean to show mercy with fear? Very, very frankly and very simply, when we are showing mercy to someone with fear and then going on in that passage, hating even the garments that are stained by the flesh, it's basically saying we're identifying people that are walking in a wayward and a sinful direction. If we are believers and we see another believer walking in that way, it's our responsibility to, in grace and truth, to confront them. But Jude was very wise in giving us this counsel. We show mercy with fear. Why do we have to be fearful? It's not that we're afraid, but we're aware that if we're, not too caref- if we're not careful enough when we are correcting and bringing someone back to fellowship with the Lord, our hearts might desire and follow after the same things that drew them away from the Lord. And so we need to have, show mercy with fear, fearing the Lord and knowing that the Lord needs to and relying on the Lord to sustain us in those moments. And then he says that we need to hate even the garments that are stained by the flesh is the exact same idea of Hebrews 12 that we mentioned before. Not just hating sin, but hating, excuse me, not just hating sin, which Paul says elsewhere in Colossians, but we are putting off sin, but we are also putting off weights that cling to us. 
Because garments that are stained by the flesh, I mean, garments in and of themselves aren't sinful, but they were affected by sin, and they were distracting us away from the Lord. And so when we are to put off every weight, we need to be always careful to think, all right, Lord, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but help me to discern if this is helpful for following after you and to making disciples. So in summary, in our time this morning, we've seen how we need to contend for the faith by remembering our enemies are here. We saw what we know about these enemies. We need to keep ourselves in God's love. We need to have mercy and grace and share that to those who need it. By God's grace, may we be a people that faithfully follows our call to discipleship in these ways. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you so much for your word in Jude and for the reminders that you do keep us. God, we, we thank you for that. We thank you that you have changed us. God, we thank you for all these truths that we've gotten to consider this morning. God, I pray for this church. I pray that you would continue to grow them as they seek to be faithful in their doctrine and in their lives before you, as they seek to continue to make disciples and share the gospel with those who don't know you, that they would come to a knowledge of you and trust you. I pray that you would sustain that church in that way. God, we want to close by just praising you and reading as we pray just Jude, the last couple verses. God, thank you that you are able to keep us from stumbling and you are able to present us blameless before your presence for your and our joy. God, to you, our God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. God, we pray that and mean that this morning. God, all this we pray in your son's name.